Well, thanks so much for joining us uh, again. Last time we talked with uh, Dr. Gary Hamas about the Shroud of Turin, and he took us through uh, the history and unique features of that artifact to help us understand its authenticity uh, and the questions surrounding that. And it was so fascinating that we're doing uh, a sort of a companion piece today, and we're going to be talking about an artifact called the Sudarium of Oviedo. And to help us understand it, we're going to be talking with Dr. Mark Goosen. So welcome, Mark. Thanks for, Hi, for thanks. joining us. Thanks very much, um, Thanks very much for asking me to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, as you might be able to hear, uh, he is not from the South like Matt and I. Uh, he has, uh, at least not from the South of America. He is, uh, uh, I believe, from Leeds, England, and he is living in La Coruña, Spain, which is right. uh, the... Uh, extreme kind of northwest corner. So, um, uh, and strangely enough, even though it's got nothing to do with the Sudarium, there are two towns in the U.S. that are called Corona, after <laughs> named after La Coruña. One is in Michigan, and and the other is um, Corona, Michigan, and the other is in Ohio, is near Ohio, somewhere like that. But there's two towns called Corona. And they're both exactly like the uh, the north uh, west coast of Spain, I think. No, I've been to Michigan. It's, they're yes. both completely inland. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Man. So you, so you uh, have written enough books on uh, a number of subjects, and yeah. uh, I all. Uh, uh, just to, to make a little plug here, uh, here's a few of the more relevant ones. You've got one on the, the tradition of the uh, image of Edessa, which many people believe to be the uh, Shroud of Turin. That's um, right. Before it was ever even called that. And then you have a couple of books on the Oviedo cloth and uh, a number of other books as well. So for people who are new to this, which is almost everybody watching this, um, it, uh, tell us what a, a sudarium is. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I always like to use the the Latin word rather than translate it because in modern twenty first century English there is no direct equivalent. It happens with um, some words from Latin and from Greek from the past that they are things that we don't use nowadays. It's a piece of cloth that was bigger than a handkerchief. Okay, what we, you know, uh, at least older people like me carry a handkerchief in your pocket. Um, it, it was bigger than that. And it was a cloth that if you look at the classical texts, the Latin texts, you can see that it was a cloth that people would generally carry around their neck. And they would use it. I mean, the, the the actual etymology of sudarium is related to sweat. Okay, so it would be a cloth that people use to wipe the sweat off their face. Uh, you can see it used in kitchens. It's uh, in classical texts. You know, a cook would have a sudarium hanging around his neck, and every time he got really hot and sweaty. Well, he'd get the cloth and clean it. It was like a, a convenience cloth to clean your face and your hands. Not good quality okay. either. So kind of like the towel in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah, I guess. You like just that. carried around. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, can you see the screen? Yes. Can you see the illustration on the screen? Okay. So um, so we, we have the sedarium. 
And uh, the Oviedo part is this part, which is this is the cathedral. Now, you're you're about near as I can figure about a three hour drive from here. Is that correct? From where I am. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so we're this is also on the north coast of Spain, um, but more in the center. And this is the cathedral there where a sudarium is kept that is uh, traditionally said to be the burial cloth. uh, that had been covering Jesus's face. That's right. And it, it comes from, if you don't mind me interrupting you, no. it's, um, it's a cloth that's mentioned in the fourth gospel, in John's gospel, where the two disciples on Easter Sunday morning go running to the tomb after they've heard that the body is no longer there. And they see the large uh, linen cloth, the burial shroud, and they also see a cloth which is described as that had been around uh, Jesus's head that was lying separately, rolled up in a place by itself in the translation that you've got there on the on the screen. OK, yes. And in this case, it's Sudario is translated as face cloth. Yeah, but a face cloth, at least I'm not too sure about in the US, but in British English, at least a face cloth is something that children use is much smaller to wash their face. In other words, you you soak it in hot water and and you would wash your face with it, but it's a lot smaller and it's made of the same material as a kitchen towel, whereas a sudarium is generally made of poor quality linen. In other words, not quality like the main burial shroud. That's very helpful. So instead of a washcloth, which is about like this, it's more the size of like a pillowcase or even a little bit larger. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so uh, in the back of the uh, Oviedo Cathedral, there is uh, on the left, you can see the Camara Santa, which is the um, uh, the chamber where this is kept. And then on the right, the oldest, the oldest part of the cathedral. The Camara Santa, which is like the holy chamber or the holy room. That's what it would translate as. Okay. And you can, if you like, compare the uh, the two images. The inside is what it is like to stand inside the chamber, but there it's set up almost like a chapel, but instead of an altar, uh, there is a, this gate and then uh, a number of relics on display yeah. behind it. So Yeah. Um, again, this is something that, you have to be, it's a bit, it's not easy to talk about these things because um, when we're talking about Christianity and such objects as the Sudarium, anything related to relics tends to get sort of, ah, ah, that's a Roman Catholic thing, okay? And there are lots of other, and, and other denominations, let's say, of Christianity sometimes tend to distance themselves from the whole idea of relics. Okay, but um, here I'm, I'm not talking about the other relics that are in the Camera Santa. And it's certainly true that in medieval church tradition, um, when there was only the Roman Catholic Church and nothing else, there are loads and loads of relics that um, you could even consider laughable today. You know, uh, drops of the Virgin Mary's milk. Well, yes. Um, And there's lots of things like that. That's very much a part of medieval tradition. But the big difference here with both the Shroud of Turin and the Sudarium is that they have been scientifically studied. In other words, 
separated from their Christian context and subject to laboratory testing, which means mm-hmm. it's not a question of whether you hold Christian beliefs or not, but these are scientific results that can be replicated and repeated any number of times in a laboratory and are true whether you are a Buddhist, an atheist, a a Muslim or a Christian. That's the important point that I'd like to make about the studies that have been done on both cloths. And as today, we're going to be talking specifically about the Sudarium, well, on the Sudarium. The uh, 1978 STIRP team that uh, investigated the, the shroud in the kind of the most rigorous examination had over two dozen people, and they were made up not simply of Christians. There were a number of different beliefs on that mm-hmm. team, uh, including uh, Barry Schwartz, who is a Jewish man who does believe that is uh, Jesus on the shroud. And then you had a number mm-hmm. of Christians who ended up not being convinced at all. And you had people who didn't profess any kind of faith. So it was a, it was a broad yeah. spectrum. And yeah. uh, so that goes to your point um, there. And one of the uh, one of the interesting things I, I was going to bring up if we had time were the number of other things that were contained in the chest. This is the the, the central feature of this chamber, and the, the chest is what contained the relics. It arrived in we and we'll we'll talk about the history a little bit more um, yeah. at some point. But okay. um, but well, well, there were. That... Go ahead. Sorry, Doug. One thing that uh, you should point out is that the silver casing on the chest is much later. Okay, it, that's yes, 12th it, or 13th century. Okay, um, uh, that silver it, casing is is from when Spain was under Arabic control. Okay, and and I believe it was added to the chest after an, the first inventory was made yeah. of it mm-hmm. to figure because the chest arrived with a bunch of stuff in it. Nobody knew exactly what was in it apparently for a while it was just well, kind of there's other things that were in it there's a, a sandal that's supposedly one of saint peter's sandals but again there's no way you could ever verify that sure and i i've been to the topkapi uh, palace museum in, in istanbul and i've seen parts of what is said to be like moses's staff which is yeah. also apparently one of the things that is supposed to be included here. So you, you do get into that mess, but let's let's leave the mess and just focus on the Sudarian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because otherwise it just sounds crazy. Now, what you see behind it on display is a is a, a replica of uh the Sudarium. Um and it is uh it's displayed more frequently than the shroud. Um be, it, it's displayed three times a year uh, Mm -hmm. during benedictions i believe is that correct yeah Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. and uh so here is what we are actually talking about this is a a a picture of the real thing that's right And, 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 and if you look at that i mean immediately what comes to mind i mean if you look at the shroud you've got an image got an image of a man crucified with the wounds and everything and there is something to look at but when you first see the sudarium it just looks like a dirty old rag. You know, I mean, if you just look at that and say, what, what can you see there? You say, well, it looks very creased. It's got stains on it. And there's not a lot else that you can say about it till you actually start to uh, study how the stains got there, what the stains are made of. And, and then it becomes a bit more interesting. 
So uh, here's a little bit of a, a map that uh, you shared with me. Uh, and of course, you're in Spain, so it's all in Spanish. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, these are, it's kind of a stain map here. And uh, there, and this is uh, really how it gets broken down to be studied, because the question is, what are the stains? And they, 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 you can see there's like a mirror image, uh, almost like a Rorschach test, yeah. and there seem to be concentric stains. And the question is, what is it and how did it get there? Well, and uh, yeah, so here, here's a here's like a close up of, of the main stain, if you can compare there. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so I guess if you can start anywhere you want, but if you want to explain why the right side seems to mirror the center, um, we could do that, or you know, you just walk us through what we're looking at here. Yeah, I mean, there are, uh, the cloth was folded over. If you look at the, the red line that goes almost down the middle of the cloth from top to bottom, that shows where it was folded over on itself, okay? In other words, somebody applied this cloth, somebody held this cloth to a dead man's face. How do we know it was a dead man's face and not a live woman's face, for example? Well, that's because um, all of these stains have been reproduced uh, in a laboratory. The stains are made up of one part blood and six parts pleural edema fluid. Now, pleural edema is what happens when somebody dies from suffocation or asphyxiation and this liquid gathers in in your lungs okay it's a plural which is the lungs edema okay and and then when the body was moved all of this liquid came out so the the first challenge in the laboratory was how can we reproduce these stains how did they get onto the cloth okay and yeah, that's their model head that was used, and in the bottle is actually human blood with the pleural edema fluid. It's an exact uh, replica of the liquid that is on the cloth, okay? The first thing that you notice is that the stains are, it's like there are some stains on top of others, okay? And what that means is that the first stain had already dried before the second stain got on top of it, which is why there are borderlines of the stains within each other, okay? You know, it, like if you spill coffee onto a tablecloth and immediately, and two seconds later, you spill more coffee, you're not going to be able to differentiate which stain is which. But if you let the first stain dry, then it will have its own shape and its own edges. And then you spill more coffee on top of that. Well, there will be further edges formed inside that. So you can see which was the first stain and which was the second stain, okay? And the only way that the first major stain, um, the only way it was possible to reproduce that exactly was, uh, first of all, the body was dead. There was no way that these stains could have been produced if the uh, if the body was breathing. Okay. Um, second, it was a man because uh, the stains were formed by somebody with a beard. Okay. Um, it, again, this is laboratory stuff. This is not um, somebody's imagination. These are scientific forensic tests 
that have been done. And third, uh, most important here, is that the first group of stains were formed by somebody who was in an upright position with both arms outstretched. Now, because of what we're talking about, everybody will immediately say, ah, crucified man. And you say, yes, but scientifically, you can't say that. All you can say from a scientific point of view is that it was a dead body, a male body in an upright position with both arms outstretched, perfectly compatible with crucifixion. But science can't affirm 100% that that was a crucified body. I mean, the logical conclusion is that it was, of course. Um, and the, the, the cloth was held to the face and... There are little double holes in the cloth, okay, that were made by um, pins. Pins probably made of bone, okay? And that was pinned to the hair. In other words, the cloth, the, the purpose of the cloth, they got the double holes. You can see them there where it says, agujeritos dobles, okay? That's where the cloth was uh, pinned to the beard or, or to the hair to hold it on. But, the idea originally, we suppose, would have been for the cloth to have been wrapped all the way around the head, but it came up against an obstacle. The head was at an angle. It had to be at an angle to form the stains the way it was, okay? Which, and it would have been resting like this uh, against the arm, okay? And rather than force it, the person who was uh, putting this cloth over the face, you know, the cloth reached here, and so they just folded the cloth back over on itself, which is why there are four stains. You can see this in the diagram here on the left, okay? Instead of wrapping it all the way around the head, something stopped whoever was uh, applying the cloth from wrapping it all the way around the head. We can, we can assume that because of the angles, it was the face that was stuck against the arm. This is for the first group of stains. So it was wrapped around the head like that. You can even calculate in the laboratory how long the body was in that position. And it was anywhere between 45 minutes and one hour for now, the Mark, group of stains to be formed. Uh, Mark, the one question would be, uh, why would there be a cloth on Jesus's face in the first place? Help people understand that. Well, um, to A, because it was a very unpleasant sight. Uh, it was, you're talking about a man who had undergo undergone terrible torture. Um, the body was dead. The Romans were only concerned with, with applying the death penalty. So after that, you could say that there was a Jewish sensibility. It's also related to the fact, to the Jewish belief that the soul is in the blood, okay? You still see that today. In you, when you, there are um, terrorist attacks in Jerusalem and Israel, and people are severely disfigured in death, well, they try to gather up all the blood possible to bury it with the person. That's another reason why, you know, if there was blood dripping out of the mouth and nose, well, they would say, oh, this, this blood has to be buried with the body. 
Okay. And so in a crucifixion victim where the, the shoulders are most likely dislocated, then to re, when you're taking the body off the cross, the pressure comes off of the lungs and therefore the, the fluid starts uh, coming out of the nose and the mouth. No, that, 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 that would be the second position. First of all, the cloth was um, over the face for between 45 to 60 minutes with the body still upright still, still on the upright. cross okay so all right okay. so that but it, so uh, let, let me ask this then the, there is there's a distinction is there a distinction on the cloth between uh lifeblood and yeah. uh, post-mortem blood yes yes there is okay. um that you can distinguish that again um from taking samples from the cloth and, and and the blood the blood that came out through the nose and mouth mixed with the pleural edema fluid is post-mortem blood okay um there's a bit of a myth that you might have spoken about as well about the shroud that says um dead bodies don't bleed but they do not with the same intensity as a live body, but if you take a dead body and cut it, blood will come out, okay? It won't spurt and it will stop before um, the, an equivalent wound would stop bleeding in a live body, obviously because there is no heart beating to, to push the blood around the body, but a dead body does bleed when it's wounded, okay? Um, just to a lesser degree and with less force. Um, the live blood comes a, a bit later because the second position from recreating the stains was actually the most difficult part. It's the part corresponding to the forehead. Okay, and the only um, position, uh, there were, th th this took a long time to reproduce in the laboratory to actually get these stains, the ones on the forehead, to actually make them exactly the same as they are on the original. And in the end, uh, the only way that um, that could have been done was with a body. Now lying on the ground with the arms still outstretched, face down, and with the feet higher than the head. Uh, why with the feet higher than the head? Because the blood dripped out through the nose and mouth and went it looks like I'm going up the face, but if, if the body is face down at an angle, it's down the face. That's why, you know, if the feet are higher up than the head, then the blood would drip like that, okay? So if you're in an upright position, obviously you're talking about dripping up the face, but mm -hmm. um, that's the stain, the one at the top there. Uh, but it's actually dripping down the face because of the position the body was in. And we also know that that would have taken between another 45 minutes to one hour. So we've reached a point where we're between one and a half hours, two hours after death, where first the body was left upright, then it was taken down and left on the ground for the same amount of time. Let, when I say left, it doesn't mean that it was abandoned and that nobody was there. It was placed on the ground and, and was in that position for that time. Of course. All right. So uh, then the the third position then mm -hmm. um, is uh, the arms I were guess... moved. Okay. The arms were put in a more natural position, and then the cloth was wrapped all the way around the head. Okay. Uh, and then 
the stains, if you look at the uh, diagram here, there's not a diagram, sorry, the photograph, in the middle, you can see the dots um, corresponding to wounds on the back of the head. That is blood shed in life. That is lifeblood on the cloth, okay? It's not post-mortem blood. And again, that corresponds to wounds made in the head by several um, sharp objects, uh, perfectly com compatible with what is later known, what was later known as the crown of thorns, okay? In other words, you've got sharp thorns penetrating the skin uh, while the body was still alive. And those are the wounds that are on the back of the sudarium. And to my mind, they're probably the most interesting, um, significant bloodstains on the cloth for the simple reason that they match the stains on the Shroud of Turin. They match both as a, uh, a, a fairly close pattern, but also they're both the same blood right. type. Is that correct? Okay. Same blood Which group, is AB. A, the same blood yeah. group and the same blood type. In other words, blood shed in life. Okay, and it and it's a blood type that uh, is not uh, at that in uh, it was not particularly common in Europe. I understand, no. but was more common in the Middle East. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Again, I mean, like in every single thing that you can ever come up with in science and history, there's always somebody who's going to argue against that sure uh, with good credentials i mean you can see that now with with uh, covid-19 you know <laughs> you can get loads of medical opinions about wearing masks and you can find just as many medical opinions that say it's a waste of time right. that's just something you have to live with um yeah. uh, un understood yeah so there are uh, there there are experts who disagree and that's one of the reasons why this is such a fascinating thing to look yeah. at and yeah. and yeah. sometimes you got to pick your authorities unfortunately and um yeah. and and uh, anyway and look at so uh, and, and regarding the oh go ahead i'm sorry go ahead no and when i say look at their motives i mean some people uh there are some people who use the shroud and the sudarium to try and prove the essential truth of Christianity. Um, and no matter how much you might think that that's a good and noble thing to do, it's not good science. But it's mm -hmm. equally, um, that's equally applicable to the other side. There are people who will try and use the information from the Shroud and the Sudarium to prove that Jesus was alive, that he never died, and all of that kind of thing. And that's, you're ignoring the evidence to try and put forward your beliefs or your sure. lack of beliefs. Yes. And, and, and even to that point, uh, and to that point, uh, even if it could be known it was Jesus on the shroud. It still doesn't necessarily prove that all his teachings were true. It no, wouldn't no. necessarily follow. So, no. uh, so we uh, don't it, want to make too much of this. No. Well, yes, I do because it's really important. But um, to my mind, at least, science and history can take us to a point where um, you're talking about data, not belief. But the next step. That's everybody's own personal belief. You could leave it just there. Um, I mean, you've got this fantastic situation in the early 20th century uh, 
where you've got a Jesuit priest arguing against the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin because he says it's just superstition. And at the same time, you've got an atheist scientist in Paris uh, arguing in favor of authenticity. <laughs> mm -hmm. okay? um, and that's, you know, it's fascinating, but that, that, that's how it works. Yeah. That it is fascinating. Um, and to kind of uh, in relation to that, really, uh, if we do a close up of some of the holes, uh, yeah. especially the ones on the left, they appear to be kind of uh, made by some sharp object that was conical, conical. So yeah. uh, which is, of course, it corresponds to thorns. Yeah, that but you couldn't they, they say were the holes where there would be a pin holding the cloth to the hair, which was matted with blood. So it wasn't like hair that was, you know, loose and wavy or anything like that, because you put a pin in, in some people's hair and it wouldn't hold anything. Mm -hmm. but, um, if the hair is this solid mass of blood, and, uh, it's, very, it's very unpleasant, actually. I mean, uh, is you can you can tend to become a bit blasé in these studies talking about crucifixion and, and death, but I mean you should never lose sight of what a horrible death it was. Not not there are no words really to describe how horrible it was. It, it was just mm. awful. It was just the most terrible torture you could imagine. And that's one of the the interesting things about the Shroud of Turin is seeing the damage on the body yes. to see just how brutal uh, that form of torture actually it was a combination of tortures yeah. uh, was. Um, but it also uh, ends up providing some uh, fascinating clues that yeah. we get to investigate. For example, uh, something like the, the butterfly stain here. Yeah. Um, and the, the so if, if we have our geography of the, the, the material, right, the cloth, right, then what you're looking at with the butterfly stain and those uh, marks above it, those marks are the back of the head, um, yep. living blood, uh, and the holes that are, that are, uh, that would correspond to the shroud of thorns or yep. the crown of thorns. And then these, the stain below it, um, would help us possibly, uh, with the stains above it, register it to the shroud itself. Um, like if you could compare the two. Now I know you're never. We're never going to get to a point where you could take the get the shroud and the sudarium in the same room. That's unlikely. That that's going to happen. Where you could lay one on the other, and so it has to be done photographically. Yeah. Um, so here is uh, an image of the shroud that uh, Barry Wars, uh gave us for last podcast. Mm -hmm. And um, through the magic of Photoshop, I, um, I'll zoom in here. And then uh, the nearest I can figure, and you can help me um, help explain where I, I went wrong here if, if I missed the mark. But they would lay about like that. Now I've put a transparency and a filter on the, on the studarium just so you can see the underlying shroud itself, but you can see on the, on to the right center, there are these stains on the, on the shroud um, as it appears to the naked eye. And they're the, the darker kind of drips. And then you yeah. can see where the studarium starts to match up there. 
Yeah. And mm -hmm. the significance of now to the right, uh, bottom right corner of the right sudarium, you can see that darker stain. That's the butterfly stain we were talking about. And when I go back to the normal, you can see that there is a discoloration in that same spot. Now, it wouldn't be uh, there. That is something yeah. that some experts have uh, uh, described as a ponytail, which is how yeah. possibly yeah. what the and then you see this knot of blood or something from the butterfly stain right on the ponytail mark. Exactly. And, that, and the mm -hmm. and the ponytail would have been what the allowed the pins to what the pins would have gone through yeah. to, to yeah. hold it. Yeah, exactly. And, and the fact that it was a ponytail was also a political statement. You've got to think that the Romans um, at that point in history were very much into short hair and being clean shaven. And so the Jews, it was like, um, okay, if they've got short hair and they're clean shaven, well, we're going to have long hair and beards to show that we're not Romans. It's a political statement as well, okay? That's interesting. Um, I did one other version uh, of this where I, I kind of turned it so that you it would emphasize even more the correspondence. So you can see uh, now that the sudarium is reversed that those kind of yellow stains where the crown of thorn is, you can see it right on top. Yeah, <laughs> you can see it correspond almost exactly. Now, of yeah. course, the stains are never going to correspond dead exactly because they were made in two, in three different positions on the sudarium, and those are different positions than the contact stains would have been made with the shroud of Turin. So they're not going to register exactly perfectly, but it is fascinating that there's enough correspondence to where you can find the general areas where they do match up. Yeah. Uh, and, and the same is true on the face. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And this is what led um, the great uh, Shroud student who passed away some years ago now, some years ago, Dr. Alan Adler was a hematologist. Um, and again, when I say he was Jewish, I say he was Jewish to show that he had no Christian axe to grind. OK. Mm -hmm. um, and his conclusion as a hematologist was that these two cloths were used on the same body, that there's too much coincidence to attribute that to, to chance. Again, mm -hmm. whose body was it? When was it? Um, that's a different question. But uh, his uh, medical conclusion was that they must have been used on the same body. Mm. Again, um, I'm sure so there are other hematologists that say they weren't, but... Um, as you say, that, that, that happens in every single discipline in, that you can study. Right. But with, with Dr. Adler, you wouldn't, uh, he couldn't be accused of confirmation bias. No. Finding something no. that he was going in looking for. No. A anybody so. who knew uh, Al uh, would know that um, that's just not true. He was one of the most mm. down to earth, direct, Fantastic guy, but um, he wouldn't, he, he didn't suffer fools gladly, let's say. <laughs> and anybody who came along with this idea that, you know, that the shroud proves the resurrection and all of that, he would just cut them off and say, no, it doesn't. Mm. You know, he, 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 he it was a great person to talk to in that because you, you knew what was serious and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. 
Um, okay, so let's flip around. This is uh, the obviously the face um, yeah. on the Shroud of Turin. You can see, and it's upright, so we're looking at it like it's a, a portrait or a mirror. And you can see there's the there's kind of a unique three shaped blood stain with a little yeah. teardrop mark uh, coming yeah. down. Yeah. And so when you do the overlay, it would uh, hit about right here. Now, if you look, stare at the um, the the drop right below the three, you can see a possibly corresponding drop yeah, uh, or stain <laughs> on this side. And to emphasize that, uh, I've done this. So you can see the shroud in the background. Uh, it, it's in reverse and then the look at where the three hits why if you look at the three um watch this it hits right on this stain that yep. you can see as part That's of that right. kind of yep. upwards where the blood dripped down onto the forehead yep. and from mm -hmm. there you can you can see all sorts of other correspondences yet again um and it it's it doesn't look like we're just like making shapes in the clouds. There looks like real correspondence to the general area of the wound. And um, again, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating how, how they, you know, these coincidences uh, come in, especially when you think that um, uh, when, if you look at the history, we know that the Sudarium has been in Spain since the early seventh century. And it's never left. Um, so if you're talking about uh, faking the two cloths, um, again, it's too much coincidence. If they were mm -hmm. both faked, the way that they are, the way that the ways that they coincide in ways that people in the Middle Ages would not even have understood, in other words, talking about blood types and blood groups. Well, it just sort of becomes too much for the imagination right, to think that they were both faked. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most uh, interesting lines of evidence on the shroud is has also been uh, it, it, uh, is related to uh, evidence on the on the Sudarium. And that is the pollen evidence. Um, uh, Dr. Habermas told, told us about how uh, the pollen documented its root. Um, and that corresponded to uh, the strongest traditions uh, and documentary evidence we have of the shroud prior to the Middle Ages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the same Swiss criminologist who did that pollen investigation did it uh, as for the Sudarium. Is, it, is that right, Max yeah. Free? Yeah, and the, and the pollen from the Sudarium uh, shows pollen, again, that is common in the Jerusalem area. And the rest of it's European, mainly Spanish, which coincides again with all the historical documents and what we know about the, you know, th this is my own particular uh, research that um, established the all, I, I looked at all the manuscripts of all the historical documents that talk about the Sudarium. Uh, there are differences because they were written in different centuries, documents written in different centuries from different points of view and for different purposes. But they do coincide in the basic route, which is that the, the Sudarium was in Jerusalem until 614. And the interesting thing there is that it is documented in Jerusalem in the year 570. It's actually mentioned in an anonymous text 
about uh, it's about a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And that's the uh, Antonius Martyr text? Yeah, yeah, that's attributed to him, but it probably wasn't because it doesn't coincide with his lifetime. Uh, you can date texts by many, many different um, ways. And one of them is um, by the buildings they mention and the geographical layout that they talk about. In other words, to take a simple example, if you are talking about a text related to the USA, and it mentions the White House, and you say it comes from the 16th century, then it doesn't, obviously. Okay, right. that's a very simple example, but that's one of the ways that we can date old texts, the way they talk about the political situation, okay, and, and buildings and, and countries. Um, in 614, the Persians invaded what is now Palestine and, and known as the Holy Land. And Christians in mass, they just escaped, okay? Um, and one group uh, fled westwards um, and eventually came into Spain through, uh, you can see on the map, it says in Spanish, Cartagena, which is Carthage, which, even though it's a very old city, was New Carthage. Because old Carthage was in the north of Africa. The, that was the Carthage that produced Hannibal and uh, uh, who fought Rome, okay, uh, two or three centuries before Christ. This, is, this was New Carthage in Spain, okay. It was then taken to Seville, to Toledo. Toledo was the capital of the Spanish Visigothic kingdom, okay. Um, up until uh, 711. 711 was the year when the uh, North Africans, the Moors as they're often called, invaded Spain and conquered just about the whole country very, very easily and with very little opposition, except for the north, the far north in the kingdom. Well, it, sorry, that's a bit um, anachronical to call it the kingdom because it wasn't a kingdom at this time, um, in the region known as Asturias, which is where Oviedo is, okay? And again, people from Spain fled northwards, running away from the invaders, okay? Um, and taking with them their most prized possessions, among which was the Sudarium. Okay, so it's been in Spain since, um, say, yeah, 616, and it's been in Asturias since the early 8th century. Uh, what the historical documents show us is that the history of the Sudarium is actually much easier to establish than the Shroud. And there is absolutely no doubt that this is the cloth that has been in Spain since the 7th century. So, if you accept that the two cloths covered uh, the same body, the only time and place where that could have happened, where both cloths uh, have supposedly been, and at least with a sudarium, it would have to have been in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, sometime before the sixth century, okay? Again, there is you can't doubt that. You, uh, from historical documents, you can't say it was in the first century, but you can say it was um, in that area um, before the sixth century. It's the only time that the two cloths could have coincided. And the, the pilgrim, the, the Antonius Martyr pilgrimage document yeah. says, uh, records 
that there was uh, a group of nuns, I believe seven nuns, uh, yeah. and they were uh, yeah. at the Jordan River in a, a small yeah. cave, and they were mm -hmm. the custodians of a chest uh, of uh, relics, including the the uh, face cloth that had covered yes. Jesus. Yeah, but they didn't show it. They didn't wave it around no, or anything like that. You couldn't but see it because, um, but they said it was there, and at the time, that's that's quite normal. It, uh, it, Again, it's very easy to impose a 21st century Western mentality onto people from history, and that's a big mistake in history, okay? Um, when everybody considered relics to be sacred objects, they weren't things that you could just say, oh, you want to see it? Here, take a look. Uh, that was it's quite natural mm -hmm. in uh, ancient Christian history to do that. A relic was sacred, and you couldn't just take it out any time you felt like it. Okay, and um, so th that's not a problem. Um, they said it was there, uh, and historically speaking, that's good enough. And according to that tradition, it was kept in a chest, which is said to be this same chest, only it wasn't adorned with silver at the time. And according to that tradition, uh, it was made, this chest was made by the disciples of the apostles. Um, yeah. Again, that's something that can't be confirmed. There's another line of thought that suggests that this particular chest that we have, the wooden part that's under the silver coating, was actually made in Spain, okay? Mm -hmm. Which wouldn't affect the history of the Sudarium because uh, it's just a, a new box, let's say. Again, we don't know when this actually was, was made. We do know it was made pretty sturdy because the chapel got blown up during the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, yeah, and that's right, but it, but it survived. Yeah, so the, the picture on the left appears to be, if you were standing sorry, where sorry, the chest it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't actually the Spanish Civil War. Um, th this was, I think it was to do with some kind of um, uh, revolution by the miners against the government in place, and uh -huh. they, uh, they they blasted the they they took refuge in the church and they shot at it. Okay? it was it, it was just before the civil war. Uh, and you can see in, in the the picture on the right, there's that there's the guys looking at looks like one of the sides of the chest yeah, that's right. in the rubble yeah. there. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, so it survived. It the, the the workmanship was excellent, apparently. Yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it must have been. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, we should probably start to to wrap it up here. Uh, what uh, uh, without asking you to overstate anything how confident are you that this is an authentic shroud that that may have covered jesus's face at the time very very confident mm. okay um maybe where i differ from other shroud students is that uh i don't think that makes any difference to the truth or untruth of the Gospels. I agree with that, certainly. Okay. That doesn't mean I'm not saying anything against that at all. Um, I'm just saying that uh, there's a limit 
to what science and history can teach us. And I think that anything that goes beyond that is a purely personal thing. In other words, faith. Okay. Um, so yes, I think I could say I'm, you know, 99.9% confident that this cloth was used on the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't prove in itself anything about who Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was. Exactly. I'm glad you said that. What uh, tests have uh, could still be done on it? That if you could have any tests done on it, what remains to be done? Like what, maybe certain technologies that have that have developed since the last time it was investigated. Yeah, um, dating the cloth again. Uh, Carbon dating comes into play here, um, but this this the great thing at the moment. The church is not is not scared of carbon dating, but it was such a disastrous affair. The carbon dating both of the shroud and of the sudaria. You know, it has been carbon dated, and it came out at the, either the seventh or the eighth century. But it's much easier in the case of the sudarium to say, well, you know, that's wrong because we know it's been in Spain since since six hundred and sixteen. And it's, and it's been documented before that. Um, what could be done that hasn't been done? Um, quite a lot, I suppose. Like, I mean, my own field of research is history. I'm the historian in the, in, in the group. But um, I'm still looking. I'm sure that somewhere there are earlier documents that must mention the, the Sudarium. And to be able to date it uh, to an earlier date than the than the 570, which is the earliest we have at the moment. Well, you could say the gospel. Fine. Okay. John's gospel. Um, but the gospels are not primarily historical documents. They contain history. That's certainly true. But they're not written as history. Okay. Um, they're written as gospels. And that's not saying they are any worse. It's just saying that they are different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now there is the there's that early translation, I believe, by uh, is it Ishidat of Merv, uh, who who uh, does an early paraphrase of John. No, that's not. And Ishidad. extrapolates. Um, it's is that not? No, Ishidat was a, uh, somebody who wrote later in the eighth or the ninth century. It's. Um, uh, Paraphrase kind of expands on what the, the name as well. Um, yeah, it's a paraphrase of John's oh, gospel. Oh, it's uh, Nonus of Panopolis. That's right, Nonus of Panopolis. The problem there is nobody has any idea who Nonus of Panopolis was or when he lived. Uh, estimates go for anywhere from the second, third, fourth, or fifth centuries, but early, certainly. And he wrote a paraphrase of the fourth gospel that talks about the sudarium being tied up in a knot at the top over the head, okay? And that's quite funny because um, uh, linen, as anybody who wears linen shirts will know, creases very easily and it's very difficult to get creases out of linen, even if you iron it, but nobody's ironed the sudarium, obviously. And it does have these crease marks in one of the top corners uh, that shows that it was tied up in a knot, okay? Uh, I don't know if you're going to put the image on. 
Yeah, uh, you can see there on the top right, those crease marks, which would come from tying it up in a knot, which would also then make it very easy to remove the cloth. You get hold of the knot and just pull. You can like see in the there, third yeah. position here, the bottom yeah. left image. Yeah, which would be the position described in the fourth gospel, in John's gospel. Mm. You know, it was taken off the head before the main shroud was put on, because again, let me emphasize, there is no facial or bodily image on this cloth. So mm. whatever produced the image on the shroud, the sudarium wasn't on the body at that moment. Mm -hmm. okay? And you would assume that in order to cover the body with a full length shroud, well, they would just have lifted off the sudarium and quite literally just left it next to the body. It's mm -hmm. not throwing it on the floor in, you know, as like, oh, this isn't worth anything. It had blood on it, so it had to be buried with the body. It was mm -hmm. all done in a big hurry, and they probably just left it lying there. And that's one of the things that, according to the fourth gospel, the disciples who, who went to the tomb early on Easter morning, that's what they saw, the big shroud mm -hmm. and the smaller sudarium. And for them... It was proof um, that Jesus had, had risen because if somebody had stolen the body, they wouldn't have bothered taking it out of the cloths. There would be no point. Mm -hmm. you just take the whole thing. And the cloths were there in such a way um, that it's not like somebody, when you get out of bed and you throw the sheets or the quilt off, um, and then you get out of bed. The, the, you know, the cloth was still in the position you would expect it to be in um, if there was a body inside it, except there wasn't a body inside it. That's mm -hmm. the point that the author of the fourth gospel is making. So maybe um, I'm contradicting myself and saying it does prove the resurrection, but um, that, that's according to what's written in the gospel. I want to make sure people know about this. Um, yeah, it's something that I've always, always found really surprising um, with both cloths, and that is um, with all the millions of professing Christians of all denominations in the world, these two objects can really help us understand um, the death of Christ and what he went through. And it's always surprised me what a small percentage of even believing active uh, Christians show an interest in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, if, if, you're, if your life is based on Christ's teaching, um, I couldn't think of anything that could be more interesting, really. Yeah, Talking and historically and archaeologically and scientifically, I mean... You know, if you don't care about the church or about Christ, well, okay, you don't care about this either. But there are actually more people like that than than Christians. Yes, and it's fascinating for uh, people who are trying to find uh, ways to uh, give reasons for unbelief as well. Yes. There are a number of skeptics who have made themselves experts and written all yeah. about both these objects as well. Yeah. So it's fascinating across the board. Yeah, so, it is, it is. Which is why people call Spain in the middle of the day to talk to guys like you. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's why I'm very happy to, to, to talk to you as well about it. I mean, you could, you know, I could talk for hours and hours and hours about, about both parts. And 
and probably bore everybody else to death, but I'd, I'd still be having a Not good me. time. <laughs> we, can, we can chat for hours. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us and um, it's been a pleasure. just giving your time and, and sharing your knowledge with us is absolutely amazing. And uh, we're, we're very thankful for you. No, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Thanks.